Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this incredible privilege of studying your word. Thank you, Father, for bringing us together as family in the unity of a faith that you've given us, Father, that you ordained even from eternity past. Thank you for your patience, your mercy, your grace, and your love. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us here this morning, but earnestly desire to be here. We want them to know that our spirit is with them, and we desire to have them back to the fold. So, Father, we pray that you comfort them and heal them and bring them back to us in your good timing. We also pray for those in the world that are still lost, Father, without hope that they be humbled and receive saving faith before it's too late, Father. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this a morning to rejoice. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. How's that noise level back there? That seems loud. Yeah. We haven't figured that out yet. Is that too loud, though? She can do all right? All right. Okay. It just seems louder than normal. Anyways, uh, Proverbs 17, Wisdom, Part 8. Um, we might summarize uh, this past week um, theme this way up here on the board. We had a lot, or the Spirit had a lot to say about life itself. Um, most of us will attest when we look back that life is short. In the grand scheme of things, it's a drop in the bucket. When you think about eternity, life is less than short. There's no word for it. It goes to infinite zero almost, right? If you're a mathematician type, when you have something that's infinitely large, anything that is finite in size shrinks to basically nothing. And that's life. Because this morning we're talking about eternal life, life eternal, that thing that wonderful thing that we've been given at salvation and it just puts everything right into perspective amen it just puts it right into perspective that life is short but you know what even though it's this short we're in it right now it doesn't always seem short life has a context and god has given us this construct of time so that we can manage it that we can understand it deal with it, cope with it. Life has a context. And because we're uniquely made, wonderfully made, as the Bible says, each one of our lives also has a specific context. Without that said context, though, our lives are vapid, and we lack the perspective that gives us a sense of purpose so right out of the gate again this morning, the Spirit wants us to think about our own lives 
the context of our own lives so that we're encouraged, so that we understand that we're still here even after he saves us because he has a definite purpose for us. And the more we understand the context of our lives, the more we understand that purpose. And so that's what we've been doing. We've been just sort of digging into the word of God and going back in many ways, in many times, many cases, to the same passages. And he orchestrates new things in our lives, new realizations. And that's what we've been doing uh, lately, is just going back and looking at the big picture and figuring out what the context of our own lives is and understanding that we each have a real purpose. And just sort of contrary to that, to get us thinking, What's worse than roaming the earth without a purpose? I honestly don't understand um, how people survive this thing called life nowadays without Christ. It's brutal out there. Brutal. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. And we specialize our human flesh specializes in devouring one another. And that's what we learn in Galatians, right? Be careful we don't devour each other even as believers. So what's worse than roaming the earth without a purpose? Um, our perspective on life is rooted in a simple fact up here on the board that we are Christ's bride. Christ has gone to prepare a home for his bride. We noted that in John 14, 1-4. That is the church, which is filled with believers. Those who were saved prior to the church age will also be there to celebrate our marriage in heaven. We noted that as well in Revelation 19, 6-9. So the point is, the context, to set context, the point is, that we have a lot to look forward to. Life is short, but we have a lot to look forward to. Aspects of life eternal that unbelievers do not have access to. Even many so-called Christians, though they make bold proclamations about their faith, they will hear Jesus say, sadly, I never knew you. I never knew you. At some point in the definite future, we believers will come face to face with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he will say to us, Welcome home, my lovely bride. Is that not going to be the best? Welcome home. I have come to, I've, I've gone to prepare this place for you. Welcome home. That's a beautiful thing to think about. An unbeliever does not have that hope. They are devoid of it. And so they roam around without that magnificent purpose that we have. That's rooted in this hope. And that's made very intimate even, knowing that we are his bride. That he chose us to be his bride. For this very reason, the Apostle Peter wrote up here on the board in the Amplified, 
1 Peter 1.3, Blessed, gratefully praised, and adored be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant and boundless mercy, has caused us to be born again, that is, to be reborn from above, spiritually transformed, renewed, and set apart for his purpose to an ever-living hope and confident assurance through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we've been born again into this ever-living hope, which means that our lives, our perspectives, the context, the purpose itself transcends this little thing we call life. We have a transcendent viewpoint. That's very different than that myopic sort of bookended viewpoint that an unbeliever is, is saddled with. Given today's climate of lies that have infected even Christian churches, we've got to stay the course. We've got to stay the course. We are in a nasty war for the truth. All we have to do is speak with the average so-called Christian today, and we quickly realize that many of them are living lies. Many of them are living lies. And I don't just mean, you know, lies about this or that doctrine as believers. None of us have it down pat, so we're always going to have some disagreement on you know, corner case this or corner case that or, you know, how to run a church even or, you know, the, the absolute perfect way to run a household. I'm talking about the big lie of lies. I'm talking about so-called Christians that are living in the big lie. And that's the one we care about the most. I believe, as I know many of you do by now, that many so-called Christians aren't saved at all, sadly. Aren't saved at all. Who cares what they proclaim? Who cares what kind of nice little t-shirt they got at some Christian bookstore? Or who cares what their mug says at work? Or their little flip chart of cal- you know, the calendar days that they rip off and each day has a little scripture on it. Who cares about all that? A lot of these people, sadly, are living in a really big lie. And just as a side note, please understand what I'm about to say. I'm not trying to distance us, distance us, you know, North Christian Church from others on some perverse quest for superiority. Uh, may it never be. I'm merely stating the truth about the current estate of modern Christianity with all of its false prophets and people teaching in Christ's good name, but they are teaching a different gospel from a different spirit that props up another Jesus 
I fear the way Paul did when he wrote to the church at Corinth. This is not, what I'm teaching this morning is ancient. It's not a novel concept at all. Paul wrote about it to several different churches. Why? Because the kingdom of darkness, the game remains the same. It's to perverse, or it's to pervert the gospel itself. Go to uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 11, 3. If you can get someone to hang their hat on a false gospel, what, else, what, uh, what more work is there to do with that person? To frustrate God. What else is there to do? You've already got them. You've got them living a big lie. What else is there to do? 2 Corinthians 11, 3. But I am afraid. You see, that's the same fear you just saw in this pastor. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, 4. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Sound familiar? Again, my fear isn't unfounded, but rather justified by the evidence all around us. I can't tell you how many people I know who claim to be Christians that talk about a Jesus that doesn't match the one that saved you and I. The one in the Bible, to be precise. Over the years, as religions come and go, there have been innumerable counterfeits of the authentic Jesus Christ. Numerable counterfeits of the authentic Jesus Christ. Why? Because Satan's smart. That's why. He knows that the best way to fool a person... Listen... No, you got to keep it with the pages, okay, sweetie? He knows that the best way to fool a person is to present them with a counterfeit. Did you hear that? The best way to fool a person is to present them with a counterfeit. So listen, here's an analogy for you. Sit back, relax. If I tell you all that I've taped a $100 bill, this is not true, under each one of your seats right now, you'd be pretty happy. Some of the younger kids would say they were pretty stoked. Some of the real young ones probably wouldn't say that either, would they, Sean? Sean's like, we don't use that language, Dad. That was like two decades ago. But why would they be stoked? Why? Well, for the simple reason that a $100 bill has street value. You could go out this afternoon and buy a nice lunch for you and your family. 
Or you could go out shopping for clothes or get that tune-up on your car that's overdue. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do with 100 bucks. The point is that I've just given you something of perceived value. The reason you got so happy is because it has a perceived value. But what if I gave you all a bunch of counterfeit bills <laughs> that just looked authentic? And even authentic enough to fool the average merchandiser. Oh. Even authentic enough to fool the average merchandiser. I mean, I even went through the trouble of crumpling them up, putting through the wash machine a few times, made them look all like, you know, authentic. So what if they were even authentic enough to fool the average retailer or, or merchandiser? So you get to spend it in this world and no one even bats an eye. Some of you are like, well, as long as I can offload this thing, I don't even care if it's legit or not. Right? You can, it's got to laugh, because, Scott, you're the only sick one in here, obviously. Some of you would be like, I just want to offload this thing. It has certain street value. I just need to, like, you know, launder it through the system. The point I'm trying to establish here is that like a counterfeit bill, which is perceived, keyword, which is perceived to have value, even though it's a lie, Satan peddles a counterfeit gospel that presents the world with a fake Jesus. In other words, the true value of that Jesus, and in my notes I have a little j, because I refuse to honor that one, even. The true value of that Jesus, and therefore the so-called good news about him, a.k.a. the little g gospel, is zilch. That's the real value of a counterfeit. Zilch. And like the counterfeit $100 bill, it has a certain perceived street value in this world. Even though it has no real value, there's a lot of people right now going to church, celebrating a different Jesus, not the one from the Bible. And because that thing has some street value, they're merchandising together over it. But if we want to know the truth of the matter, and if we want to be honest about it, if we want to exercise integrity towards it, every one of you would burn that counterfeit $100 bill the moment you realized it was a phony. That's what integrity would do. Well, it's phony. Burn it. Right on the spot. If you had integrity, you would burn it on the spot. But what's the temptation? Why would there ever be any hesitation to do the right thing? The temptation is to leverage the faulty perception 
that it has real value in order to spend it in the world economy. By burning up, there's no value. But there's a perceived value of it in an economy that I can merchandise in. Hmm, right? And the flesh is going, hmm. Do you see that's what false religion is? It's a system of merchandising that's built around a currency that Satan has infused into it. This is precisely why I keep referring to the whole of this as Satan's economy. It's because that's what is required in order to propagate lies. You need a whole economy. Otherwise, the lie just falls on the floor. You've got to have a system of merchandising, a whole economy. You have to have a whole system. And just like the, you know, the almighty dollar, people must agree on the basic premise that the currency that is exchanged has implied value. Otherwise, there is no economy. You and I have to agree on the value of something in order for there to be an exchange. Satan is genius enough to create an entire economy around counterfeit currency. But here's the deal. The whole thing is fake. The whole thing is fake. It's not, you know, worth the paper it's printed on, so to speak. The whole thing is fake. In other words, as soon as you put satanic currency under the scrutiny of a trained eye, that is, someone equipped with the word of truth, as soon as the falsehood of the currency is discovered, the entire economy collapses. Why? Because currency requires faith in order for it to have any real value. If you know better, if you know it's a counterfeit, you can't have faith in it, in other words. Currency, regardless of the economy we're talking about, requires faith for it, or faith in it, for it to have any value, regardless of the economy that it's upholding or substantiating. What do you think Jesus was describing at the end of Matthew Seven. Go to Matthew seven, twenty-four. Matthew seven, twenty-four. I mean, this is exactly what Jesus was talking about. What do we build? You know, what do we what do we invest in? What kind of currency do we merchandise in? And at the end of the day, what do we have to show for it? I mean. If you pay for, if you go out and buy a Rolex for $5,000, right, and you use a bunch of counterfeit $100 bills, is that technically, is that Rolex yours? No, it's not. You might as well burn that thing too. Matthew 7, 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the, ruts, the floods came, 
and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. That's what happens when an entire economy collapses. It's a big deal. There's a lot of disappointed people, including yourself, if you're invested in that economy. Fair enough? Yeah, when an economy falls, it's a big deal. It's like, if you know anything about the, the, the bubbles as of late in the last few decades, that's all it was. It was always propped up on something fake. Someone selling false securities. Someone, you know, puffing up an, an industry. All smoke and mirrors. And then guess what? When someone figured out that it was counterfeit, the whole economy collapsed and people were in all disarray. When an economy collapses, it's a big deal. It's a big fall. A big crash happens. That's all Jesus was talking about. You know, that's all he was talking about. It's going to look good for a little while, right? The, 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 this person built a house, but ultimately it crashed. And as the Bible says, great was the fall of it. Jesus was talking about two different economies, you see. The person who invests in God's economy is assured long-term success and positive, eternal return on investment. The person who invests in Satan's economy is guaranteed ruin. Guaranteed ruin. That is the point of all this, my friends. I'm not just rambling on here. I hope you realize that. This isn't a lesson on economy. The truth is that if we look at Christianity today as a road, let's just say we're walking down a road. Pick your own visual. There's a road, and on either side of this road, there are, you know, pretty little homes with white picket fences. You know, walking down the center line, and it all looks fine from the middle of the road. The truth is, though, that many of the homes on this road are facades built on sand. And when the winds of judgment blow, they will be ruined. While those who invested in and built on the rock, that is the true Jesus of the Bible, well, their homes will stand gloriously up against judgment, and their salvation will be consistent with the faith and hope they have in eternal life up here in the board Acts 16:31 and they said believe in the lord jesus that is the rock that's your first investment portfolio do you understand your first investment in that economy is to believe in him that's your entree into god's economy when you say I'm going to take all that garbage that i had built up for myself like like paul said i consider it all rubbish just to gain christ I'll take that big heaping pile of you know, self-respect and reputation and even money from a worldly perspective, and I'm going to throw it in the garbage can, and I'll consider it a pearl that I found. I'm going to sell everything to get that thing. 
I'm going to give it all up to have Him. That's what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved, you and your household. So that's a long-winded way of saying something the Spirit's been emphasizing now for well over a week. That is that we believers in the true Lord and Savior of the Bible, Jesus Christ proper, we enjoy a living hope of things to come up here on the board. Again, 1 Peter 1.3 in the Amplified, Blessed, gratefully praised and adored be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant and boundless mercy has caused us to be born again, that is to be reborn from above, spiritually transformed, renewed and set apart for his purpose to an ever-living hope and confident assurance through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, contrary to this is the fact that there are many in this world, even so-called Christians. We're back to this. Spirit's not letting it go for a good reason. Because there are a lot of so-called Christians that are living a lie. I want to say the last time I ever looked at a poll in America, 80% something, it might be on the downslide, but it's a very high percentage of, of Americans will check off that box when polled. What religion are you? They go, oh, Christian, that's me. And they check off a box as if that makes them a Christian, as if that somehow transforms them magically into a believer. But it doesn't. That's a lie. So the average American even, as far as I understand statistically, calls themselves a Christian, but they're living a lie. And Jesus himself said, you shall know them by their what? By their fruit. So if you're living a lie, it doesn't matter what the heck's coming out of your mouth. Read James 1, uh, 1.22, right? Be doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Yeah. There's a lot of so-called Christians that are living a lie. And thank God for his abundant mercy that he keeps those people alive and gives them chance after chance after chance to finally humble themselves before the holy God of the universe so that they might be saved so that they can be plucked out of that lie and saved. Again, contrary to the point of the board, there are many in this world, even so-called Christians that are living a lie, who are analogously spending counterfeit $100 bills in churches right now that teach a different gospel than the one we know to be true here. And if I were to stand before these lost congregations of people, I would be derided. I'd be run out of town for presenting nothing other than the truth from the Word of God. Imagine that. Just put that into perspective. Someone shows up with the truth, with light from the Word of God, and the darkness hates it. And those who live in darkness 
hate it for fear that their darkness be exposed. No arrogant person wants to be exposed. That's the point. And so when the, the light of truth comes on the scene, they, they respond, they react vehemently. They reject that truth. Imagine that. So sad. Many people in this world reject the truth even when it's presented to them in the Holy Bible. That's why just a little sidebar, a little strategy, keep yourself out of hot water. Always start, when you, when you come to a point of contention with someone, always start with, I believe the Bible, and the Bible says. That's it. You put all the weight on the Bible. I believe the Bible, and the Bible says. What do you say? What do you have to say about that? You're this, you're that. No, I believe in the Bible, and the Bible says. You see? You put all the onus, the weightiness of conflict on the Word of God. And then you tell that person, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with the Word of God. Let's meet there, because that's where I'm at. You see? If you want to meet me there, I'll go there with you because that's where I put all my stock and barrel is in the Bible. Let's meet there. We can have a conversation. But I will not meet you at our flesh. I will not meet flesh to flesh with you. You will not make this about me because it's not about me. It's about my Lord and Savior. This conversation has everything to do with him, not me. I'm a wretch. This is, has to do with him. Just a little sidebar. Fair enough? Many people in this world reject the truth even when it's presented to them in the Holy Bible. What do they do? And I don't know, maybe some of you listening to my voice right now are doing this right now. Maybe you've done it several times already. Maybe you've looked at the bald guy and say, who the hell does he think he is? Seriously, who's that guy think he is with his shiny little cap? Melissa, what was that little giggle over there? I don't know, I don't know what's going on over there. Who does he think he is? They love to make it about the man, right? Because they don't dare tangle with the creator. They have to make it about a man. They have to deride the man. They look for loopholes and excuses as to why the truth cannot be true. But here's the baseline wisdom on this. As we've learned in the Word of God, refusal to accept the truth doesn't change it. You can reject it all you want. But it never changes the truth, because the truth is, I'll use a theological word, immutable. The truth is immutable. It means it never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So says Holy Scripture. He doesn't change his mind like we do, as fickle as we are. One day you love me, the next day you hate me. Then you love me, then you hate me, because you're fickle. Jesus doesn't have that problem. The Word of God doesn't have that problem. What's true yesterday is true today is true tomorrow. Refusal to accept the truth doesn't change it. For example, the holy God of the universe has given us bits of his own soul to ponder. Go to 1 Timothy 2, verse 3. 1 Timothy 2, verse 3. 
Let's see, what does God want in all of this? If we're going to talk about the gospel, we're going to talk about the good news, we're going to talk about people living in a lie, we're going to talk about people being derided because they present the truth to others. 1 Timothy 2, verse 3. What does the Bible have to say? What does the Bible have to say? 1 Timothy 2, 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people. 1 Timothy 2, 4. Who desires all people, not some, not most, all people. That's his baseline desire. All people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. First, do you see what kind of God he is? What does he want for all people? It says it right there clearly, doesn't it? He wants all to be saved. That's his ultimate desire. Does he know otherwise? Of course he does. But that doesn't change his desire. It's like when you have kids, right? I want them to grow up to be decent people. If you have 10 kids, you know, you know some portion of them are probably not going to hit the mark. <laughs> right? I mean, it just is what it is. But it doesn't change your desire for all of them. Now hold your thumb there. Let's grab additional godly viewpoint. Go to Mark 8.34. So first we have a God that desires all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now we're going to add that. Keep that in mind. Keep that right there on the, on the table in front of you. God desires all people to be saved. Keep that like right here. And then take Mark 8.34 and on here in a moment and put it right next to it. And then we'll synthesize. Mark 8.34. Okay? Now, you got to remember... Most of you are probably going to have some red letters here, which means it's Jesus, Mark 8, verse 34. Okay? God wants all to be saved. Now, here's Jesus. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I alluded to this earlier. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. In other words, you want to keep that wretched life of yours, you will lose it in the end. But whoever loses that thing, loses his life for my sake and the Gospels, will save it. You're a recipient, recipient of eternal life, you see. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So, on the one hand, in 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, we read that God wants all people to be saved, right? That's his baseline desire. But on the other hand, we have a qualifier. We have a qualifier that a person must willingly and knowingly surrender themselves before God will save them. 
In other words, just because God wants to save everyone doesn't mean his own integrity will allow it. There's a qualifier. Those are the terms of agreement upon entering God's economy. Those are the terms of agreement upon entering God's economy. Do you remember the rich man? What must I do to gain eternal life? Do you remember that? What did Jesus say? You obviously have a problem with money. Get rid of all of that and then you can come. And what did he do? He walked away. He was unwilling to surrender. That's the whole point of that little story. Those are the terms of agreement, though. I didn't set them. God did. There are terms of agreement upon entering God's economy. You don't get to keep all the counterfeit $100 bills and bring it with you. Does that make sense? Yeah. In other words, in order to merchandise in God's grace economy, you've got to surrender yourself. That's your entree. You've got to give up all that street value that you thought was so valuable that Paul said was rubbish, right? I give up everything for him. That's the pattern. That's the pattern. So in order to merchandise in God's grace economy, you've got to surrender yourself. You've got to willingly surrender any value you assign to your fleshly life in exchange for a new life in Christ Jesus that is lived by grace. In other words, you've got to burn that counterfeit $100 bill. Some of you are like, oh, right? Here goes lunch. Here goes my new haircut. Here goes my new whatever. Right? And there's a, there's a struggle there, right? Because you're watching something that has some value somewhere in some economy go up in flames. Poof. And your flesh is like, no, right? It's in the back. No. Stella. No. <laughs> right? No. That's that agony that we talked about. Remember Agizanamai, right, in the Greek? That's that striving. That's why it's hard for us, because we don't really want to give up the $100 bill. Right? But those are God's terms. We don't get to come to him with any counterfeit expectations about how we gain entry into his economy. It has to be by grace. As we've ended the past two messages now, grace is free. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. But it isn't easy. It isn't easy. It's free, but it's not easy. Why? Because it comes with stipulations about actually receiving it. Or more accurately, about who and when God gives it. Just as a side note, one of the telltale signs that a person's under a false Christian, quote-unquote, religion is that they have this sense of entitlement about grace. It's one of the hallmarks of false Christianity. There's this, there's this kind of like this entitlement about grace. Um, as if to say, you know, something like, well... You know, Mr. God, already it's disrespectful, but you know the attitude. Well, Mr. God, um, 
You say you're gracious and loving, right? Well, then give me my grace, and maybe I'll choose to lend some of my life to you. That's the picture of the average Christian even nowadays, I would argue. You say you're gracious, then give me something, and I'll give you something in return. My life. Um, This attitude is in stark contrast to the humble person who says, Lord, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference between the two? Why do you think Jesus told parables like the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Because, and listen up, this parable is an illustration of what I've been teaching all morning. There is still, there are still a lot of people in this world who proclaim a righteousness before God. But all they've ever done, and will continue to do sadly, is invest in themselves. They don't just not burn the $100 counterfeit bill. They invest it and make more of them. Does that make sense? They don't do the, in, the thing of integrity. When, when truth shines on them, they don't go, this is rubbish. And flame it up and hand it over to God. Hand themselves, their, themselves over to God. They don't do that thing. They cling to the counterfeits. And then they go out and they invest those counterfeits into a counterfeit economy where they gain a return on investment. And so they look at their John 3.16 t-shirt and they look at that as another um, self-centered piece of value that's all about them. Do you understand? That little checkbox. If grandma asks me, I'm a Christian. If anyone asks me, I believe in Jesus. And they'll leave me alone. Go to Luke 18, 9. Luke 18, verse 9. That is not what Jesus was talking about when he said, deny yourself. That is not denying yourself at all. That is just investing more and more into yourself. You think it's beyond the the human flesh to look at a John 3.16 verse and say, I could probably get a little mileage out of that thing. There's this cute girl at the the church. I want to try to, you know, shack up with her. I'm going to come in with all kinds of John 3.16 paraphernalia. I'm a hoax. I'm a fraud but I'm going to look the part because I can get some mileage out of this thing. You think that's beyond people? You kidding me? People are disgusting. Disgusting. Especially unbelievers. Don't ever trust them. That's all I can tell you. Don't ever trust them. I had a, uh, oh, my favorite, one of my favorite people, Joshua, right? I was going to quote him, but he sent me an email yesterday, Joshua Makua from Kenya. And, um, he said, you know what? He goes, I don't even like to, uh, 
He goes, I don't even like to take gifts from unbelievers. Because there's always like something attached to it. There's an ugliness to it. I don't even like to take gifts from unbelievers. Because you know that, you know that from their perspective, you just entered into their economy. Right? There's no such thing as grace the way we know it in an unbeliever's economy. An unbeliever always has strings attached. You see? And to avoid that whole headache, Joshua's an extremely wise individual. He said, I don't even like taking gifts from them. Because I know eventually it's going to come back to haunt me. Right? That's why you all have to be very careful. Who do you befriend? Who do you even do business with? Who do you receive gifts from? You say, oh, but they were just being a swell chap. Oh, they were just being kind, or they're just being friendly. If Satan was here right now, he wouldn't have a pitchfork and horns. You wouldn't even look at me. I know you've heard this before. You literally wouldn't look at me. He's so beautiful and so intelligent. I know that's hard to believe, right? Right? I mean, well, he probably looked just like me or something. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Right? Shake it off. You wouldn't even look at me. He would say one word and you'd be like, oh. Right? I forgot where I was going. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Right? So, that didn't help. But, so gifts from unbelievers, right? (laughs) Oh, Joshua, he said, I don't even want to take it from people. I don't even want to take it. Why? Because that economy implies a hook. It will always come back to you. There's always an expectation tied to it. See, biblical grace, there is no expectation. Even the core, the best we can give somebody, which is our love, even that is completely selfless. We love because of who we are. We're selfless lovers, right? If you get into, and I hate to excuse my French here, but if you get in a bed with someone that's an unbeliever, that doesn't exist in their world. That's a grace gift from God, that kind of love. The only love they know is a selfish love. And so when they do something for you, there's always an expectation. There's an exchange. There's a merchandising that's implied, and it always comes back to haunt you. All right, you there at Luke 8, 9? Yet, jeez, I had to go through that whole story just so you guys could get there in time. I'm just kidding. Luke 18, 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Imagine that that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Oh, my word. Oh, my word. Right? Already I'm like, oh, my goodness. This guy's seriously doing this right now? <laughs> God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You have the audacity to point at the poor tax collector. (laughs) Right? It's unbelievable. 
I fast twice a week. Uh, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, do you see how entitled the Pharisee was about his standing before God? It was unquestionable in his perverse mind. He was entitled to goodness, to be able to go to the throne of grace and ask this way. Pray this way. The Pharisee was entitled. And in contrast, did you see the humility of the tax collector? Which one did God save? Which of the religious folks will he choose to save today? I mean, he wants to save all people, right? We just saw that in Holy Scripture. He wants to save. His desire is to save all people. But there are conditions to receiving his grace. So concentrate. As soon as you start talking about God's grace, you are immediately talking about his economy alone. Yeah, we lost our link, guys. Did you notice? Okay, imagine this, the Amplified Classic, John 6.44. No one is able to come to me. Listen, listen. This is so perfect. It's so unbelievable. This is a pivotal verse. And what just happened? My thing crashed again. It's unbelievable. What? You see the big orange thing? Yeah. All right, look at the board then. John 6.44, disregard the guy. It's not important anyways. So in the Amplified Classic, listen, no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me attracts and draws him and gives him the desire to come to me. And Then I will raise him up from the dead at the last day. Okay, are you ready to piece this together for simplicity's sake? I know we've got a lot of moving parts here, but hopefully you see the connective tissue already. If, we just saw this, if no one can shoehorn their way into God's economy, we just saw that, right? God says, no, no, no. Unless I draw you to myself, you're not coming. You're not coming. I don't care how much you want to come. You're not coming. But didn't we prophesy? Didn't we teach? Didn't we do this? Didn't we strive out demons? Didn't we? I never knew you. Mm. If no one can shoehorn their way into God's grace economy, then how can anyone ever be saved? How can anyone ever be saved? The key is James 4, 6. God gives grace to who? 
By what you have been saved through faith? By grace. Doesn't take a genius to put those two things together. God gives grace to the humble. By grace, God saves. Let's see. This is the weirdest stuff, guys. Maybe it'll come up eventually. The point is, God saves the humble. That's it. That's as simple as it gets. God saves the humble. What did we just read in the parable? The arrogant one? Not. The humble tax collector? And by the way, the Pharisees are the ones with all the reputation. The tax collectors were like the dregs of society, thieves. People didn't like tax collectors. They had very low standing in society. And they were sinners because they were thieves. Who did he save? Did he save the self-righteous one? The one that looked the part? The one that, you know, went to church all the time? Or did he save the lowly one, the humble one who was beating his chest saying, have mercy on me. I realize I'm a sinner. I need grace. I need something far beyond I could ever do. God saves the humble. What has the Spirit been saying for years and years from this pulpit? And I've got to pick a spot here soon. Humility is the key to the spiritual life. Humility is the key. Well, here you go. The front door into God's grace economy will receive only one key for it to be opened. That key has one word written on it, grace. And for the sake of context, heaven itself is entered on the premise of grace alone. And God gives saving grace to the humble only. Grace is the only way to salvation. The only way. And God gives grace to the humble and is opposed to the proud. That literally is a picture of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. He was opposed to the Pharisee. He gave grace to the humble tax collector. This is why when we read about, listen, this is really important, because this could help you evangelize. If you're not saved already yourself, listen, obviously. But maybe you're saved and you're thinking about, how do I evangelize Uncle Jimmy? How do I do this thing? When we read about striving to enter through the narrow gate in Luke 13, 24, we must realize that we aren't pounding on the front door of the kingdom of heaven. We are agonizing. We are agonizing over the basic premise that Jesus presented his disciples with that we noted earlier. Mark 8.34, listen. And calling, to the crowd, calling the crowd to him uh, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you want to understand what that striving, that agony is about, that Jesus said in Luke 13, here it is. Here it is. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the agony. Do you see it? That process. That's why conversion often takes a long time for a lot of people. They hear the truth, they reject it. Right? Think of the parable of the soils. They hear the truth, they're excited, they go back to their lives, wealth chokes it out. They hear the truth, they get super excited, they're like, yeah, yeah, right? And they run for like a few months, and then the soil is really shallow and rocky, and they just piddle out. As soon as the sun comes and the pressure, they have no faith, and they're gone. Poof. All emotional. That's why it takes a while for a lot of people. Somebody says, oh, but what about the thief on the cross? Well, do you know exactly what he was like before the cross? No, so stop speculating. It could have been, spur, you know, quote-unquote, spur of the moment, but obviously he knew a little bit more about Jesus than a lot of people uh, admit. He could, have been, he could have seen Jesus several times throughout his life in his ministry and been like, hmm. And then finally on the cross, he said, oh, we don't know. Could have been like this. I don't know that either. But you don't either, so we can't speculate. The point is that conversion, according to the Bible, can be agonizing, can be tough. Because giving up that $100 bill, right, putting that flame, you know, you get the $100 bill and you get the flame, and you're like, oh, 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 right? Oh, no, 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 you know what this means? This means my whole life changes. Oh, my whole life just changed. My, that's why a person who's never gone through that can't possibly be saved. Just said some weird prayer or something like that. Just, you know, made a, a mockery of, of salvation itself. Um, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Do you see how very simple salvation is? Yes, of course. It's just not easy, but simple. The entirety of it rests upon God's gracious desire to save all people, but the gate is narrow that leads to life. He wants everybody to be saved, but many find the road that leads to destruction because the gate that leads to life is narrow and few find it. So says Holy Scripture. The key to that gate, though, is given to the humble, and it's called grace. To get through that gate, God has to decide to give you the grace. Remember, nobody comes unless he draws them. So somehow, don't ask me exactly the mechanism, somehow God decides, this person is humble. I will give them grace. I will save this one because of their humility because of their willingness to surrender, because of their willingness to, de to deny themselves, to go, 
I will give that person salvation. I think I'm going to end there. Can I get an amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege to study your word here this morning as family. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. What a wonderful blessing it's been here this morning to have it inserted into our souls. Father, we just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls, back to our homes even, and then your will be done out to a world that's just lost. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.